Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from the LPRC. This is the latest in our weekly update series, and today I'm joined by co-host Tom Meehan and Tony D'Ofrio and our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And we're just going to take a quick trip around the world. Uh, I'll start off, you know, very briefly. It's been a very busy, very productive week so far here at the LPRC, um, brainstorming with the North Florida SAC or special agent in charge of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the FDLE. Uh, Mike Williams, former sheriff and head of law enforcement in Duval County, Florida, which is the Jacksonville area. So it's JSO, it's called, um, looking at state engagement or at least um, uh, some collaboration on getting ahead of crime problems through good research and development across crime places uh, and those operators, the retail chains, and then uh, local law enforcement and beyond uh, better and better ways to uh, get better information about what actually is going on, uh, being more focused and precise in what we do about it, and individual place protection, self-protection, uh, as well as collaborative or collective protection. How do we partner retailers across uh, platforms from retailer to retailer in co-located areas like a shopping mall, a shopping center, or at intersections or nearby around intersections that have particular issues uh, working together, and that's with the University of Florida Safer Places Lab. Eastside is an area in uh, East Gainesville, Florida, where um, we have a cluster of LPRC members, uh, retail chains that operate stores there, um, a particularly high or at least a higher elevated crime rate area, a lot of victimization of the people that work and shop in those environments, um, and they're all co-located, and it's an ideal area to conduct, again, self-protection improvement as well as better and better ways to partner with each other and with law enforcement. How do we uh, better deploy, integrate? How do we better uh, dose or modify what and how and where and what we're doing, when we're doing things, uh, and how we better communicate across each other? Earlier threat warnings, uh, threat sharing, uh, where at all possible, Um, obviously crime problem sharing at an elevated level understanding the dynamics around those places that might drive why they're experiencing higher levels of crime victimization than other similar places or near even other nearby areas um, for maybe action again with law enforcement, but maybe with other uh, city and civic uh, groups to maybe uh, create better conditions, better transportation and opportunities, but with an intent to create just much safer, more stable environments that people want to work, they want to visit, they want to shop in. Um, and so I think by looking at that Safer Places Lab Eastside concept with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and then also had a very productive meeting with uh, some leadership and crime and analysis team members and leaders at the Gainesville Police Department, looking for ways that we again can collaborate in this environment. So by talk individual calls and discussions with retailers, um, national chains that are LPRC members, uh, and then, of course, in the future with some locally owned and operated stores that are in those areas, Um, but also some of the other businesses, liquor stores and things like that, uh, that are generating and even radiating crime risks 
um, from their properties outward. Um, and some of these retailer stores are between one to, I mean, excuse me, two to three of some of these crime radiators. Uh, also, the ingress, egress routes and things like that. Some of those factors play a role in why their places are much more heavily victimized more, and those that are there are at much elevated risk of being victimized. So uh, stay tuned on all that. We're excited to conduct these collaborations. It's, these things can take a year or two to set up. We've been working on this for about a year now. Um, so we're very excited about, of course, the UF Safer Places Lab and University of Florida's Innovation Square, the four block area that's our lab outside uh, and where our LPRC six interior labs are located in the UF Innovate Hub building situated there now to be able to extend concepts and options and testing from virtual reality environments that you all know we've got simulated uh, in that cave environment, the sim lab environment uh, down into uh, our four square block area. And then now to translate what we're learning there in that real world environment over to uh, the east side safer places lab, you can see the opportunities there. Uh, we're also working to establish a west side lab at our Oaks Mall complex. Uh, it's, again, very early days there, but that's going to allow us to look at individual and collaborative protection in a shopping mall environment, a in this case, an enclosed mall. Uh, so what do we do in Zone 4 parking lot in Zones 3, 2, 1 within that environment, the common areas and then the actual store areas? Um, that's going to be another exciting part of this. So that's kind of the logic and the environment or ecosystem that we at the LPRC and all of our 70 plus retail corporate members are over 100 technology partner members, solution partners, um, the retail associations that we're working with, the national associations, um, and so on, the planning, the detailing. Uh, so with the LPRC research team, which is now seven strong, uh, up from the normal two or three that we've operated over the last uh, 15 years or so uh, is going to allow us already allowing us to have a lot more bandwidth, a lot more capability and flexibility and agility, um, a lot more expertise to carry off these at a high level and then collaborating with some of my colleagues, faculty members across the University of Florida and the Digital Worlds Institute and College of Art uh, to architecture and interior design faculty and the design construction planning uh, college uh, over to uh, working, of course, where I'm now situated in the uh, Wertheim College of Engineering um, with computer scientists, faculty, and grad students, uh, and even undergrads, uh, the same in I ISE, Industrial Systems Engineering, and ECE, Electrical and Computer Engineering. Uh, we're able to get a lot of things done. And then finally, over to the U.S. Innovation Academy, those IA students that uh, get minors uh, across 33 majors in innovation those teams and interns from that program. So when you pull all of these uh, factors, all of these capabilities, all these great people, ideas, energy, expertise together, it's absolutely amazing uh, where we are and where we are headed and what we're going to hopefully all work together to do to better safeguard the vulnerable in these places and in these spaces. Uh, it's for the good of everybody, and uh, we're excited about it. Uh, again, for more information, you know, operations at lpresearch.org uh, or our website, of course, lpresearch.org. Uh, um, and so stay tuned on that. With no further ado, let me head over to Tony D'Onofrio. And Tony, if you could 
let us know what you're up to and what we need to know. Thank you, Reed, and uh, I appreciate all those great updates. And hello, everyone, again, uh, sitting here in Germany. Let me start this week, actually, with a synopsis from the Robin Report in an article titled Reimagining the Future of Retail. Uh, the future of retail will be shaped by a hybrid shopping model based on the new normal of highly interconnected experiences that serve specific target markets, local, personal, smaller, curated, and customized. The cookie-cutter approach of building more and bigger stores uh, does not resonate with today's consumer's mindset. The pandemic has left consumers with a new set of value, a higher expectation of what service means, and very little patience when things don't go the way they should. Consumers increasingly want variety in how and when and where they shop, and they expect retailers to deliver a memorable, in a memorable environment that addresses their specific needs. Key are, rele again, relevant curated shopping experiences with abundant personalized choices. When, uh, again, this article also talked about the future of malls, um, consumers are conflicted in what they want as the endless um, aisle that online shopping provides, but at the same time, they get overwhelmed by the number of choices. What they really want, again, is curated uh, experiences, and they, they don't necessarily like uh, traveling to a whole bunch of stores um, and not getting the experiences they want. Malls are absolutely going to be part of the future of retail, but the need to change it really must be like the community, more like the communities that they serve. Also, malls should uh, really look like a local market, and there are great examples of this that I've talked about in in previous presentations on the future of retail uh, in China, where basically the mall is actually part of the community. In some cases. It's at the bottom of a skyscraper and people just come down and shop. So it's integrated into the community. And it could include things like movie theaters, amusement rides, museums, skating rings. Uh, you go to uh, Dubai and you actually have an in indoor skiing uh, lift, complete with a lift if you wanted to in one of the big malls. Uh, Consumers in one market don't necessarily want the same as other markets. Some may want escape rooms, video arcades. Others may want wellness facilities, including gyms, yogas, walking clinics, dentists, and veterinarians. In terms of physical stores, uh, this article really pointed to five interesting uh, characteristics that were predicted. Number one, stores should be designed with social media in mind. Winning physical stores are designed for shareable word of mind and social media experiences. In, and again, this is uh, prevalent in some parts of China and North America and in restaurants and shopping centers. They are designed especially for social media sharing and millions of shared impressions are key to driving in store traffic and even offline sales and increasing brand awareness. Number two, uh, stores, uh, physical stores, should offer five cents experiences. Environments uh, in the physical space should activate all five senses. 
uh, in the shopping journal in new imaginative ways. Grocery stores will have an advantage because they can actually do and go after all five uh, senses. Number three are meandering designs. Um, and by meandering designs, uh, again, the, the days of long, monotonous, straight lines of goods stacked from floor to ceiling will be replaced by circular pathways to create environments that foster discovery and exploration. And number four, smart stores and smart customer interaction. The state of in-store technology is now equal to customers' technical prowess. RFID can be used for frictionless checkout and to find items in the store when you are shopping. Uh, and they can facilitate the whole uh, shopping experience. Uh, QR codes can allow you to integrate and look at videos about products. Salespeople with smart customer relationship or CRM tools can interact with shoppers. Um, understanding where the consumer is and the readiness of technology is a key consideration for retailers to be able to deliver these meaningful experiences. And these are the four actually that were highlighted and I've added five. The fifth one to me is don't hesitate to study what the rest of the world is doing. Again, there are markets in other parts of the world um, and, uh, and good examples are actually again in Asia, especially in uh, Japan, in Korea, and also especially even more in China and leverage those examples and taking them into other parts of the world. Switching topics, let me summarize some interesting research from RIS News. I, I was shocked to read that almost half of U.S. frontline retail employees and two-thirds of frontline managers are thinking of leaving their job in the next few months. Not enough flexibility is the number one reason, according to uh, McKinsey. Gardner points to five strategies that uh, can leverage technology to retain employees. Number one is flexible scheduling. Uh, and this is, again, allowing employees to actually engage to figure out uh, shift swapping and shift bidding as bidding to actually be able to actually um, accommodate flexibility, which again was the number one reason. Number two, delivery of corporate communication, investment in real time communication technology enables retailers to communicate across uh, locations with speed and agility. And this is important for productivity, so everybody speaks uh, the same uh, message. Number three, performance management and feedback. Uh, many retailers are abandoning one size fits all uh, of all approaches in terms of how they provide feedback. Number four, in internal talent marketplaces. Uh, Gardner researchers estimate that by 2023, 15% of large global organizations will integrate uh, their new business data to drive more AI-enabled talent matching in large-scale deployments and internal talent marketplaces. And number five, pulse surveys to gauge employee sentiment. And this is moving away from the yearly or quarterly company reviews uh, into something and actually giving almost daily or, or even hourly feedback. Again, according to Garner, by 2023, 80% of enterprises with 2,500 plus employees will augment annual engagement surveys with pulse focus groups or indirect methods 
to gauge sentiment. I love the quote from Jos Gurupa uh, in the research from RIS News, uh, and he said, "There are quote there are two major waves of disruptions that have been triggered by the COVID pandemic, and these waves have forced retail to change more in the last two years than it has in the last 20. Many of the changes leverage advanced technology to solve first wave problems, such as serving shoppers during lockdown and resolving." massive supply chain issues. Now, two years later, especially grocers are dealing with second wave issues such as tight labor markets, rising wages, the great recognition, and quiet quitting. And finally, again, since I am in Europe, some interesting news out of the UK this week, and this one is from Reuters on uh, what's happening with retail and inflation. British consumers are spending uh, ticked up last month at a rate they really lag behind inflation, according to a survey that underscored the pressure on household budgets ahead of the Christmas holiday. Barclay cards said spending on its credit card and debit rose nearly 4% year-on-year in November, far behind the annual 11% growth uh, last year. And in October, that was the highest reading in 41 years. Uh, some 94% of Britain surveyed by Blackie Card said they were concerned about the impact of sorting household energy on their personal finances. Again, having been in Europe almost two weeks now, I can tell you there's a heavy, heavy concern about energy here, uh, cost of energy, and what's going to happen this winter, and also inflation. So, And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Uh, thank you, Reed. Thank you, Tony. Uh, we're going to cover some risk and some current trends all around risk and what's occurring and maybe some breaking news here, as we always do. Wanted to just uh, start off with kind of a sombering uh, article that was uh, written uh, and rewritten several times. Uh, I'll reference the Bloomberg article first, which I think um, for anybody who has children, I would actually... Um, recommend reading it and what it really talks about is viral trends with social media and we've on the podcast in the past several years talked about viral trends several times this is talking about uh, TikTok's viral uh, viral challenges or trends and you're know, luring children to their death it is a, a very sombering uh, article it's actually rather long but i would highly recommend uh, if you have children that use social media uh, in the teen ages of reading it, what it really talks about is the blackout challenge. Uh, and for the listeners that have never heard of this, uh, I actually have not heard of this until I read this article, but it is a challenge where, um, and while this is uh, preference, the, this is articles about TikTok, this is in social media challenges in general, where that on both TikTok and YouTube, there is a challenge that encourages um, teens to choke themselves or choke each other until someone back blacks out to get the adrenaline rush when they're waking up. And um, when you read this article, it, you know you, there are several uh, examples of children that are um, unfortunately died from asphyxiation from hanging themselves during this challenge. Some actually taping it, some not. Uh, but what what it really leads to is just the the pure power of social media and what we always talk about here on the podcast and what it leads for to for adults, but also for children. Um, one, the, the, a big portion of this article 
is really about the due diligence or the requirements by the social media companies to protect children online. Uh, there are laws around uh, in the United States around children under 13 and what they're able to access online, but it's also uh, somewhat challenging to actually enforce or identify how, how the age here. TikTok was actually fined outside of the U.S. for, for children use. Uh, I think if you're a TikTok user, you may see an age prompt appear, but there are several um, companies that allow for age verification through video with a very high degree of accuracy. One San Francisco-based company, Hive, uh, which I believe Facebook and Instagram use in some fashion today. Uh, and you know, there are a lot of privacy concerns under biometric data, but these companies by design don't save any information. And this is one of those arguments of privacy versus safety, um, especially when it comes to children. Uh, I continue to, to, to use social media for many different platforms. I know here at the LPRC, we talk about it with the FusionNet and some other things uh, that we use it for, for open source and active intelligence gathering. The key facto or the key point of this is, you know, how do you keep your children safe uh, and educate them on the dangers of social media and what goes on. So um, don't want to spend too much time on that, but it, it continues to be a topic. We also continue to see a top, uh, topic around TikTok specifically, the Chinese government and their algorithm and what is occurring. Uh, and you know, from time to time, we hear about bans and, and things of that nature. So definitely a space to look at and continue to watch. Just switching gears a little bit, but I kind of wanted to talk about some tech news in general. You know, Apple was, uh, due to the zero COVID uh, restrictions in China, has she changed their forecasting for the amount of phones related to the supply chip disruption. And what is occurring is in, in there's a specific Foxconn plant in China that uh, several people left. Uh, because their their fear of being locked in for COVID lockdown. So this continues to, to kind of talk about the landscape of supply chain and how really challenging it is for companies around the globe to manage different um, COVID restrictions throughout the world. Now, this is one where there's been unprecedented protests in China. Um, and I, I think that there's this is not only is this kind of a a new phenomenon, but you're starting to see really large degrees of protests um, in China and what is occurring there and, and how people in China are, you know, protesting against the government. There was, a, I think we talked a little bit this last week, this uh, a show of solidarity and the also the blank paper, you know, became kind of the the subject of their in the protests holding up a blank paper. Why? Because that blank paper doesn't contain any messages, which is not anti-government. And a lot of uh, social media videos of just groups of tens of thousands of people protesting. In the Foxconn uh, instance here, this was uh, basically Apple City. This is all just based iPhone manufacturing where there were some COVID ca uh, cases and people wanted to get out of the factory so they weren't stuck there um, for very long uh, periods of time. So definitely still something to watch uh, and continue to monitor for all of us in the supply chain world, although uh, you may not have any manufacturing in in uh, China or mainland China. There is something to be said about the number of sheer components 
components that are made there. So just uh, definitely something for all of us to keep an eye on. Uh, I know that uh, there's still a fair amount of things made there, and, and, and I think we need to keep that in, in front of mind as, as we continue to see these challenges with supply chains. Switching gears a little bit to um, kind of some interesting news around the U.S. government. So the FBI and um, the Federal Trade Commission seized a website called iSpoof. Uh, interestingly enough, iSpoof has been around for a long time. Uh, this was uh, actually hundreds were arrested and along with the seizure. And iSpoof was an account, uh, I'm sorry, a website or and, and or an app that allowed you to spoof a phone number. So you could actually go in and change a phone number uh, caller ID phone number to use this, and they they portrayed it as a joking app, um, but this is a really interesting one because this is going on for, for a long time. This has been out for a long time and as an advertised, but they were able to identify, you know, a, a, a large percentage of fraud being perpetrated through this service, and were able to seize it um, and and stop it. And this is a, a very interesting one because. Uh, this shows that the, the U.S. government, along with the U.K. government, are really going and pushing the, the fact that, hey, Interpol, the U.S. government, the, you, know, you have all uh, the, these different agencies working together. Europol is involved as well, saying we're going to go after companies that perpetrate fraud or allow fraud to be perpetrated using an online methodology. Um, the BBC... You know, uh, had a lot of um, on a lot of information on this. A 34-year-old uh, arrested, um, and he's a pending uh, a court hearing in London as one of the the folks that owned this website. And this is one of those ones where, you know, the the due diligence where it starts and where it stops. Of if you have a website or a, a service that is used to perpetrate fraud and you're aware of it. What is your onus on it? So I thought it was very interesting. It's obviously a victory for all of us um, because the, the, this was a website that was used um, you know, to perpetrate fraud. And it, it, interestingly enough, uh, there were things where they, they were able to uh, talk about 59,000 suspects in fraud associated with this and were able to arrest some. So I think this is a, a trend that we'll continue to see. Continue to see. There are other uh, programs like this available, uh, and this has been around for a few years, several years actually. So this is a, a win for all of us here in the security and, and loss prevention space that, that sites like this are being attacked. It also gives you some solitude of some of these cases take years to address and that while at times it may seem discouraging that we may not see um, these things you know, actually being addressed, they are still being addressed. And switching gears a little bit to TikTok and kind of a, a ransomware or malware type uh, event is that there's a TikTok challenge called the Invisible Challenge, which is actually a trend where people, there's a filter that makes you look invisible and naturally uh, people take it to the extreme. So they use this trend and they take off all their clothes to be invisible. So there was a, a slew of posts about how you could uh, undo this um, this filter to see the, these folks. And they called it the, the malware um, 
basically was really, really advanced. Why it's so advanced is what they did is they allowed uh, the they they allowed people to go to a website into GitHub. Actually, say this works. You know, the way GitHub works is kind of you can go in and, and give feedback on it working. So they drove them to a, a code a, a site to execute code, and the uninvisibly the, it was called the uninvisibility decloaker. And you had folks that were actually going on to GitHub saying this, you know, this was great, didn't even try it yet, and then downloading malicious code, all with the, the means to try to, you know, decloak this invisible piece. Why is this such an interesting um, example? Not so much of the, the, the filter, but the fact that the way this worked is they had a tool, the, the information on the slide is there's a toolkit available. They actually brought people into a Discord group in a, in a private area, talked to them. They lured them into upvoting on GitHub. Um, you know, this unfiltered code work somehow persuaded people to do this before they used it. Then they had them download it and install a Python package that, uh, uh, you know, actually was malware. So this, these are a lot of steps involved here. But one of the interesting parts here is that um, this is a different trend, really, in malware, because you're actually, what they're doing there is by upvoting the GitHub, you're artificially uh letting people artificially telling people this is safe so you have this unusual impact here where you have this code that people are artificially saying is good which in turn um you know increases the thought process and validity of it so now you have folks going and going well hey if this many people upvoted it it's got to work i'm going to download this it's got to be safe so a really really interesting challenge um, that that occurred and I think it's it's important to note that this is one of those kind of more sophisticated attempts and I think most of the news is focused on the fact that this is an invisibility challenge an invisibility challenge throughout after and people are, are leaning on the fact of being able to decloak images of naked people but one of the most thing, prolific things here for me is the level of sophistication in the attack and this wouldn't be challenging to duplicate in other facets so it, it really throws it really throws a whole new challenge of you have a, a, a recognized place to download code like github where someone is utilizing an upvote feature to artificially um, make people feel like it's safe. So I think it's something we'll have to watch uh, a little bit more closely. Next, uh, last past, you know, uh, made an announcement that uh, there to customers that a breach caused by a previous breach that they had a second breach that was caused by a previous um, a previous speech. The crooks made off with uh, proprietary information, including some of their source code, which is actually pretty. Um, concerning when you think about a password management tool. Now, according to LastPass, customers' passwords backed up on the company's servers um, never existed in a decrypted form in the cloud. The master password uh, used to unscramble, the saved passwords is only ever requested uh, and user and memory stored on your own device. Therefore, any passwords stored in the cloud are encrypted. Uh, before they're uploaded and only decrypted again after they've been downloaded. In other words, even if a vault data had been stolen, 
it, it would be in an intelligible way. So what, basically what, what LastPass is saying is it, they're not saying that that information was stolen, but if it was, it would be encrypted in a way that a user would have to have your key and a, a device to decrypt it. The concerning part about all of this, and I'm a user of LastPass, I also use 1Password, I, I encourage people to use password vaults, is that when you have these companies that there are folks that target them, and it's a very, very important in password management tools to use only the most reputable tools out there so that you know that they're going to use the, the most significant security protocols available today. Um, I think that LastPass is doing uh, the right thing here. They're, you know, they're giving information um, as it becomes available, and I feel like they're doing the best they can even if this information turns out that crooks could have some personal information, it would most likely be home uh, addresses, phone numbers, and some payment cards, uh, you know, information. I, I, this is kind of typical in a breach. I'm not saying that that's the case, but from all technical aspects, your passwords are safe. Um, and then you, the only way they'd be able to get them is to be able to get that that password, you know, that master password and decrypt them. So if you're using LastPass today, uh, the theoretical thought process would be that you you would not have any uh, risk. And why I said theoretical is because, you know, that's based on information that's available today. Um, I'm pretty confident here with this one uh, that your password data is safe. Much like other breaches though, and this is unfortunate, you may have um, you may have your some of your information, you know, available, uh, in, like what we see in a lot of different breaches. And then last but certainly not least, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of January 6th and the, the Capitol insurrection. Uh, there has been a lot of chatter. No, uh, fortunately, we haven't, I have not seen or haven't heard of any in uh, specific around chatter associated with, you know, domestic terror. There have been recently uh, some news stories about the D.C. Metro Police and the things that they're working on, um, and we will we will continue to, you know, monitor this situation as needed. I think that um, the recent, a lot of the recent lawsuits. Um, that we're dealing with here uh, are related to the January 6th are definitely sh uh, a good deterrent for folks. When I say lawsuits, I'm, I apologize. I mean indictments are a good deterrent for people to let know that the U.S. government's not going to tolerate this type of activity. But we'll continue to monitor it. There was some chatter this morning about people talking about what occurred. Um, there have been general bulletins throughout federal, uh, uh, local, and state law enforcement around domestic terror and staying in tune to what's occurring, but no specific credible threats around that two-year anniversary. Uh, but as I said, we'll monitor and activate the fusion net as needed. And with that, I will turn it over to Tony and Reed. All right. Thanks so much, Tom, for all that great information. Again, Tony, thanks again for all that you do and all that you're providing to the crime science uh, podcast listeners, uh, to our team uh, and our membership at the LPRC. Um, and I want to wish everybody a continued happy 
and safe holiday season. Um, we're always here for you at lpresearch.org um, and stay tuned, stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 